You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. So we've got an interesting text to deal with today. Um, Some challenges in the text I want to work through with you all. Uh, But we love expository preaching at our church. We love to just go through the Bible verse by verse. And that's what we do um, most every Sunday. Um, Recently, I was um, out of town and uh, needed to catch an Uber to an airport. And um, called an Uber and and it rolls up. and, And it was picking me up in front of a church. And so I'm standing in front of this church building. And the Uber rolls up. And the driver's in a Mercedes that's got real shiny rims. And, and I, I see it rolling up, and I just hear, boom, you know, like bass thumping. Like I can hear it from a long way away. And I'm like, this is going to be fun. And um, so it's, it's looking like a rap video rolling up here. And, um, and then when I open the door, it, it just magically and very suddenly switches to Taylor Swift. And, um, and I, you know, like I... I appreciate Taylor Swift, but I wouldn't call myself a Swifty. And um, so I get in, and it's an African-American driver, and it's me in my normal white man uniform with, like, flannel, ball cap. And, and, um, and, I, and I just, like, I, I'm too awkward to just let something like that go. And I'm like, I'm like do, you, uh, do you know what, um, you, you know who I am? Like, you think, I'll, you think I just wanted to go with Taylor Swift? That's what you thought here? And, um, and so I was like, I was like, yeah, this is not really me, you know, and he's like, well, I was listening to Juvenile, and I was like, I can back that thing up a little bit, you know, and so I'm just trying to like, and so he says, um, so he says, <laughs> he says, I'll tell you what, since you're offended by me playing Taylor Swift, I'll give you control of the music on the way to the airport, and I thought that was the greatest honor, so we compromised at hip-hop that was Christian, uh, so I introduced him to Reach Records, and we listened to some Christian hip-hop on the way to um, to the airport. And so the, uh, the idea there is stewardship. And it is a high honor. If you, if you drive a vehicle and you, um, and you give the ox cable to someone riding shotgun, you know that's a high honor, right? Amen? And, and so the idea there is stewardship, which, is, which finds itself in a lot of biblical places. We're, we're, we're stewarding lots of different things. We're stewarding money, we're stewarding our children, we're stewarding grace, and that's what we want to talk about in today's sermon. Before I jump into the text, I want to bring um, Hunter family up and um, model stewardship. If you guys could go ahead and come up, please. Um, We're going to do a baby dedication today, and stewardship is illustrated so beautifully in child dedication. Because what we we do in a child dedication is, is we are not doing something today, this is Julian by the way, we're not doing something today that acknowledges Julian's salvation because we know that belongs to the Lord himself. Um, But what we're doing is we're acknowledging that the Hunter family is coming together as stewardship, as as they model stewardship in the raising of their boys, um, they, they acknowledge that these boys ultimately belong to God. And as a parent, that's a hard thing to admit, isn't it? It's, it's hard for us to, to let go of our children, to understand that they really belong to God more than they belong to us, but they've been given into our care. And the reason we bring them up on stage like this is because as a church, not only do we believe that the Hunter family, that Justin and Sierra are given uh, a responsibility to steward um, their sons in a way to honor the Lord, but we believe as a church we're called to this as well that we do this as the people of God, that we steward these boys to love Jesus. And so 
Um, guys, we're so thankful for you. This is Caleb and Eli, if you don't know them, um, and Justin and Sierra and their newest addition to their family, baby Julian. And uh, we're so thrilled that God has blessed their family with health and um, just taking care of them and them walking in the gospel along with New Heights Church. And so we're going to pray over baby Julian. And if you would, church, stretch forward your hand and let's acknowledge stewardship as we pray over this family. God, thank you so much for the Hunter family. Um, we thank you for just being in their lives, being, being present with them um, and, and drawing them to the cross. Lord, we thank you for Julian, and we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, already begin to work in him, that his home would be a home of, of just gospel centrality, that, the, that he would grow up in an environment where he sees the gospel day in and day out, um, Lord, where he is um, in a relationship with his parents, where he can hear the gospel and he's in a relationship with his brothers that they share with him. And Lord, we pray and, and, um, and Lord, even, even thank you in advance um, for your work in placing him in this family and the day that he will surrender and repent and, and come to the cross uh, to become a son of the king. So Lord, we thank you for Julian. We thank you for the Hunter family. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Can you all wake, welcome baby Julian to the family? Thank you, guys. Thank you. <clears throat> hey, um, as, as we look at stewardship, um, I think it's so important for us to, to remind ourselves that this is, this is so prevalent in parenthood. It's so prevalent in, in lots of different areas. In our finances, it's prevalent in the way that we work, um, in our jobs. Um, I think stewardship, just the principle in general, has outworkings in so many different areas of life. And um, Peter really leans in in two, and it's, the, it's the, really the, the theme of the whole letter of 1 Peter, what we've named our uh, series, Hope and Holiness. And so the two points I have for you to in today's sermon time is that we want to be good stewards of our own holiness to ourselves. Um, so in our vertical relationship with us and the Father, we're called to be holy, to abstain from sin. And so we're good stewards of the righteousness that's been imputed to us through Jesus on the cross. And then secondly, um, we give hope to other people. So our vertical relationship is about holiness with God. And then in holiness with others, we are um, taking the message of the gospel, the hope of the gospel to others. And so um, if you would look at verse one with me, as we look at holiness in ourselves, Peter begins this passage by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Um, and, and so he is going to begin by, by warning the, the Gentile Christians to guard against the sin that will creep into their lives. He's saying the righteousness of Jesus on the cross has been imputed unto you. That is a high honor, just like my Uber driver giving me the ox cable saying you can choose all the music on the way to the airport. I mean, that is an honor, but the honor of righteousness of Jesus imputed unto you is such an honor that, that you're to take it seriously. So seriously, in fact, that Peter uses the phrase, arm yourselves. And now, I, I, if, I, if I were going to have lunch with you this week, and I said, hey, let's grab lunch this week, um, I'll text you where we're going to meet up, that sort of thing, and I, and I text you, hey, meet me at this time, we're going to go to lunch, and then I finish the text message with, bring your gun, all right? What, what are you going to think about where we're going? You're going to have some questions probably, right? Why do I need my gun? Are we going to Coal Miners Lounge? What's, what's the details of the outing that we're going to do, right, that, that, that make you say, bring your gun? 
Now, it's not often that people say this to me, but it has been said to me a couple times, bring your gun. And I've always got some further questions, like why are we uh, going someplace where I need a weapon? And, and the idea is that the life that we live is so tempted in a world that's marred by sin that Peter uses a military term in verse 1. He says, arm yourselves, that you need to take up arms and prepare yourselves for a war, a battle. Now, um, if, you, if you look at Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, he says that we're in a battle and we put on armor as we war against flesh and blood and powers and principalities of darkness. And so that, I think there's a reference to Satan and his work in the world. We're at war with Satan. We're at war with the world as, as unbelievers and, and unbelieving nations draw us away from the morality of God. But I think our number one enemy that we war against and have to battle against is our own flesh. We are our own worst enemies. Amen. We tempt ourselves. The Bible says no, no one think that they're tempted by God. We tempt ourselves and we're tempted to walk away from the spiritual goodness of Christ and into the fleshly pleasure of the world. And so Peter's response to that, as he talks about the holiness we've been given, he says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking of Jesus. Um, I think he's referencing what Paul calls the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He says, we have the mind of Christ. That means that we are to think the way that Jesus thought. We are to have the same mindset that Jesus had. First uh, Peter 1.13 is the beginning of the letter. Um, when Peter says, arm yourselves with, with this way of thinking, he's really pointing back to what he began the letter with in chapter 1, verse 13, where he said, preparing your minds for action. If you remember, that means to gird up your loins, gird up the loins of your mind. It's a reference to tying up your garments so that you can run into battle. And so Peter's kind of gone through in the letter already that we've looked at as a church. He's already kind of gone through several areas that are difficult for Christians, continuing in the church, right? Like it's hard to just continue in faithfulness in the church. And Peter talks about that. He talks about uh, continuing gracefully and honoring the Lord and holiness in your marriage, that's difficult. It takes work. He talks about submitting to the government. Lord knows that's difficult. He talks about abstaining from sin. We all know this from our own temptation. It's hard to abstain from sin. But every time he addresses a particular issue in a particular area of life, he always returns to the, the aiming of our minds to arm them to avoid sin. I mean, he always returns to the gospel. that We don't do it by our own power. We do it by the power of Christ through his cross, his death, his resurrection. In verse uh, 1, he finishes this phrase. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, there's several verses we're going to look at today that could be misunderstood. This is one of them. Does this mean that anyone who suffers for the gospel becomes perfected or they're sinless? And I don't think that's what Peter's saying. What I think Peter is saying is that this means that those who have armed themselves with the mind of Jesus, those who have armed themselves with the way that Jesus thinks, um, have have decided and have made a commitment that they will uh, not walk in a pattern of sin any longer. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't sin, right? I think all of us Christians can acknowledge that's true. We mess up, we screw up, we stumble, we fall. Uh, but we should, if we're repentant believers, see a decreased pattern of sin in our lives. You parents know what this is like, right? When you tell your kid, or when your kid tells you that, He's sorry for something, but then he does the same thing. You, you eventually acknowledge you're not really sorry. And, and as parents, we say, if you're sorry, act like it. Well, if, if we're repentant Christians, and we've truly repented of sin, that doesn't mean we're never going to sin again, but we should have a, a posture of repentance. 
And so we live um, in the way that verse 2 says. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What a decision to make, amen? What a commitment to make. That the rest of my days, I'm not going to live for what I want to do, but rather I'm going to live for what God wants me to do. And I, I want to do just a quick exercise, and I want, I want you to draw your attention to a couple of things this morning. The first thing I want you to um, kind of meditate on and turn your attention to is your past. Now, I know, I know we, can, we can quickly forget our past, and we can move on from our past. We've all watched Lion King, right? Hakuna Matata. And put the past behind you. Um, but... The past is important for us to remember because we remember what God has brought us from, right? So I want you to think about your past. I just want you in your mind right now to think about all the nonsense you've committed. Some of it was BC, before Christ, before you repented and became a Christian. Some of the, the nonsense, the sin that I want you to just kind of think about that you've committed may have been after you became a Christian, this nonsense as you've kind of stumbled your way through sanctification. And as you think of the things and, and the, just the horrible things you've done, the sins you've committed, maybe, maybe even like what we would call not so horrible things, but the sin you've committed um, in your past, I want you to look at verse 3, if we can put verse 3 on the screen. And as you're thinking of your past, I want you to look at your past, but also look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter points out what is culturally popular at the time in Rome. And he says to these people who have repented and trusted in Jesus, the time that you have given to that is plenty. The time that you have dedicated to the sin of your past is enough. You've given, he says, the time that has passed suffices. You've test-driven that madness and nonsense long enough. And so some of y'all just need to hear this today because you have genuinely repented of sin. You've genuinely trusted in Jesus. You've given your life to him, but you're still test-driving your sin whenever you want to. Cut it out. It's nonsense. The time that you've already given your life to this is plenty I've had enough sensuality. Instead, give me the, the long-term honor that is found within marriage. I've had enough passions and worldly pleasures. Give me the spiritual joys of, of impacting people that will last for eternity, not just for a little while. Drunkenness is mentioned very clearly as something that is sinful. And, and listen, I, I, I've never been drunk. I can't even speak to this, but I've seen enough drunks to see that that is not what I want for my life. I want to believe what the Bible says, that being filled with the Spirit is so much better than being filled with alcohol. That I want to be controlled not by any substance, but rather I want to be sober-minded and controlled by God's will and what He wants for my life. Cut it out. You've given plenty of time to that. The rest of your days commit to living for God's will and holiness. Verse 4 says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We are going to stand before God and give an account for what we've done. And our abstinence from sinful nonsense should, should surprise the world. But sadly, you know what the world is most often surprised by? Not our holiness, but our hypocrisy. When I talk to people who don't go to church, they're, they're, they're never shocked by how good we live. What they're shocked by is how hypocritical we can be. 
It's evidence of us not living out the hope that's within us. And Peter calls us to arm ourselves and move away from that madness. Verse 6, he says, This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So, when, when we see this verse, I know the, the indication may be first to think that, that somehow the gospel is preached to dead people, um, or that, that there's a second chance after, after life. That's not what Peter's saying, I want to explain that. Um, this is one of the verses that's used to um, kind of back up the doctrine of purgatory, which is not biblical. Um, Hebrews tells us very clearly that the Bible appoints us to die once and after that face judgment. There's no second chances after death. But what Peter, I think, is refuting is a first century argument against Christianity. Um, one of the real arguments against Christianity was the fact that people died. Because think about it. The whole Christian message was predicated on the fact that a man rose from the dead. Like You ever thought about what the first Christian funeral was like after Jesus rose from the dead? Like they, had, they had, all these people had like seen Jesus alive and then someone in the church dies and they're like at the wake, like anything going to happen? Like it's just like maybe a little bit of uncertainty, like are we going to overcome death like every time someone in the church dies? And, and one of the popular arguments against Christianity was the fact that people died. They were like the antagonistic people against Christianity would basically say, if your Lord rose from the dead, then why don't you rise from the dead when you die? And so this is what I think Peter's speaking against. He's saying that even those who died in the flesh have been resurrected spiritually and they are with Jesus and they're given eternal life right now in a very real way. And he says that that was, of course, through the gospel. And in verse 7, he goes, continues further and he says the end of all things is at hand. He's referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so self-controlled, meaning that you arm yourselves and you abstain from sin. You don't give in to temptation. You don't do things that the Bible clearly calls immoral. If, if, there's lots of lists in the New Testament of things you're to not do. If you're, if you're ever wondering about whether something's right or wrong, um, talk to someone in the church and we can help you see what the Bible says about those things. Sober-mindedness, I think, is a clear um, application of the drunkenness that he points out, that we're to remain sober-minded. We're not to be under the influence of anything other than the Spirit. And so he says, remain self-controlled and sober-minded. And the reason is, is because the end of all things is at hand. Now, I find it a little bit troubling that we're 2,000 years past this when this is written, and Jesus hasn't come back in the second coming yet. And I look at that, and I'm like, how could Peter say the end of all things is at hand? And here we are 2,000 years later. Um, now, I think the reason that that's hard for us is because we misunderstand the difference between soon and imminent. Peter's point is that the return of Jesus is imminent. A synonym would be impending, although that sounds scarier than maybe it ought to be. But imminent means that it is a certainty and it is coming in whether we acknowledge it or not. And, and we may not know a time frame, but we know it is coming. Soon would be we know the time frame. And I don't think Peter is saying that he knows the time that Jesus is going to come back, but rather that Jesus' coming is imminent. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, he inaugurated what the Bible refers to as the last days. Um, and I want you to ask yourself, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would that change how you live today? Um, some of y'all might grab a megaphone and get out on the street and start preaching repentance. Some of y'all might be like Tim McGraw and go skydiving or go 2.7 seconds on a bull. Um, Martin Luther, the reformer of the 16th century that started the Protestant Reformation, 
Um, his commentary on 1 Peter is so much fun. Um, but someone asked him one time what he would do today if he knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow. And his answer was, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. <laughs> I just, Martin Luther had a, an interesting sense of humor. He said, I'd plant a tree and pay my taxes. And, and that was just kind of a joking way of saying, I would, do, I would do what I would do on an average day, a normal day. Apparently, he loved trees and taxes. Um, but, but his point was that he lives every day like Jesus could come back tomorrow. And if that's the reality we live in, then, then we understand the difference between soon and imminent. If Jesus is coming back soon, we might be tempted to sit down on the grass and look at the sky waiting for it. But if we understand that Jesus' return is imminent, then instead we carry on on mission, living in holiness to worship him and bring him glory, but also living in a way that we give hope to other people. And so point two is taking hope to others. The idea, again, is stewardship. In, in, in holiness, we have the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us. It's not our own. It's just in our possession. Here you have the message of the gospel that's given to us and grace that's been given to us. And in turn, we give grace and love and the gospel to others. Uh, we went to the Kid Casino last night uh, to celebrate Judah's birthday. Y'all know the Kid Casino? That's Billy Bob's, in case y'all don't know. <clears throat> okay, so we go to Billy Bob's and spend way too much money, and we're gaining tickets, and I keep tokens back for myself because my kids aren't good enough at getting tickets, and I feel like it's my dad duty to win tickets so they have something when they get to the counter. So, you know, I'm gambling my life away trying to win tickets uh, so they can buy Tootsie Rolls. And... <laughs> And, and we're sitting, we sit down after playing some games, we're eating pizza, and one of the, one of the guys in the party next to us um, used to be in my youth group. And he's like, well, and so we, we connect and we start talking a little bit, and their kids just like, their kids are going a little wild, and, um, and they're, they're t- you can tell they're tired, like every kid gets at the kid casino, worn out, ready to go home, just crash. And so they say, hey, we have to, we have to get our kids home. You want these tokens? And I'm telling you, like, I thought I was being very generous with my kids with the amount of tokens that I gave them, but this family put me to shame. And there was, like, probably over $100 worth of tokens that they just gave us. And Amanda's like, no, we can't do that. And I was like, shut your mouth. We get the tokens. <laughs> right? Like, I'm like, we're going to have some tickets. And, and so um, when it's all said and done, um, I'm, I'm getting tickets. We have 4,263 tickets which I was like super proud of. I was amazed by that. Um, and I still had tokens left. And Amanda's like, we have to cash in the tickets and leave. I can't stand this place any longer. And I was like, I've still got lots of tokens. She's like, give them to a little kid. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and so like, and, it, and, it, and the, the crazy irony of it was that I was refusing to give away what had been freely given to me. It wasn't even something that I'd paid for. And this is how we get as Christians, right? Like, We've been freely given unto, but yet we don't freely give. By the way, I took over 4,000 in tickets. My kids got absolute crap. They didn't get nothing for that. And there's been an inflation in tickets, uh, ticket costs I've seen. Because a Tootsie Roll used to be two tickets when I was a kid. They were 25 for the little men's Tootsie Rolls. Isn't that crazy? If I ever got 4,000 tickets as a kid, I could have bought a Chevy S10. But like, <laughs> my kids didn't get nothing for that. Um, and that's why I was so stingy. But like as, as Christians, we're called into this ministry of generosity that, that God, the, the word the Bible uses that God has lavished grace upon you. So you know, you're supposed to lavish grace on other people. It means when people treat you wrong, 
You're supposed to show them grace. Don't hold their sins against them in the same way God doesn't hold your sins against you. We want to be like, no, this is mine. God gave it to me. If you've been shown love, you are obligated to show love. If you've been shown grace, you are obligated to show grace. Verse 8 says, above all. Above all. It means higher than all these other commands. Higher than the command of don't be involved in an orgy or go to a drinking party. Right? Like we tend to elevate those things. But Peter says, above all. This is most important. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. There's some really cool Greek, <coughs> excuse me, Greek words in this last part I want to show you. <coughs> One of them is a kantes. It's, it's translated as keep here in the English Standard Version. It most literally means <coughs> maintain fervently. Um, and a lot of Greek words have cool word pictures associated with them. And, and the word picture associated with a kantes is stretch, stretching something out making something last a long time. So if you could imagine like, a, uh, like when you go to the movie theater and you get that big tub of popcorn with the extra butter and all that madness, and then it's gone before the movie starts. You just like, you haven't even enjoyed the previews and it's gone. <clears throat> you should not scarf that down. You should eat it one kernel at a time so that it can last through the movie. Peter said, all, the end of all things is at hand. <clears throat> it's imminent. But you need to stretch out your love. That you're not in a sprint, you're in a marathon, and you need to make your love that you've been given by God and your love toward other people, you need to make that last until your life is over. If you'd imagine it like a campfire, <clears throat> if you build a fire, <clears throat> you have to continue to maintain that fire, right? If you just let it sit, <clears throat> it's going to burn out. But if you stoke that fire up and you add firewood to that fire, it can burn for years. You can keep a fire going forever. And here, we're told to keep that love going. What's important for us to remember is that love is an intentional command. It's not just a feeling in the Bible. The Bible gives it as a command. That means in your marriages, it's, it's a choice. It's an action. That means in your relationships in the church, it's a choice. It's an action. That means in your relationship to non-believers, it's a choice. It's an action to show love. Even if you don't feel the warm fuzzies, you show love. Verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So love covers a multitude of sins, and that leads us into hospitality. I want you to look at me and hear me very clearly. You can, you can limp into this mess every week, and that's totally fine. That's totally acceptable. You can come here every week with sins you've committed, and you're welcome here because you're in a gathering of people who are sinners. That's, that's gospel message. That's good news. You should preach to yourself every Sunday when you're fighting with your kids trying to get them to church or when you're fighting with yourself because you don't want to come. Like when you put in the effort to come and be with God's people, you remind yourself love covers a multitude of sins and you're not being judged here. And we want to show you hospitality. You know what hospitality means? It means to make a friend out of a stranger. The Greek word is a compound word for, from philos and xenos. Philos meaning friend, xenos meaning stranger. Philoxenos, stranger friend. Y'all got some strange friends, I know. But, but the, the idea here is that you find someone that you don't know and you know them and befriend them. So I know when we look at hospitality, we think, oh, I gotta open up my home and let people come into my house. That's not necessarily the case. 
Now, there, there are times that that's good, that you should be hospitable in that way, but sometimes hospitality is going out to eat with someone. Sometimes hospitality is finding someone who's sitting by themselves and having a conversation with them. Sometimes hospitality is scheduling a call or coffee, but we are to make friends with strangers. By the way, next Sunday night, we're going to have an evening service. And one of the reasons that the pastors wanted to implement some evening liturgy is so we could have space where we could sit down at tables and get to know people. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I, I can't understand you because I'm an extrovert. But there are a lot of introverts in this church who do understand you. And let me just say that the gospel calls you to hospitality, to make friends of people that you don't know. Because in doing so, you're modeling the gospel. You're taking people who are strangers and you're making them friends. You're taking hope to others. Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. And so when we do this, we do it not by our own strength or by our own merit or out of the goodness of our own heart. We do this because because God has saved us, because God has given us grace and he's given us gifts. I think Peter's referring to spiritual gifts here. Um, Grace in the Bible is charis in Greek. Um, charisma is the, is the word used here, which means spiritual giftings. Um, and and when, we, when we see this, uh, there's a couple of times Paul writes about it, and he makes lists of spiritual gifts. And you guys, maybe if you're Christian, um, if you've been a Christian for a while, you may have seen like spiritual gift assessments, um, which I don't love. They're kind of like just like uh, really biblical language personality test. Like Everyone always gets mercy, mercy shower, and I always thought it was mercy shower. And I was like, what's a shower got to do with uh, mercy? Um, but, but they're really just kind of, they turn into like personality tests. And I don't think that's a good way to look at spiritual gifts. And the reason is, is because I don't think I own spiritual gifts. I think I'm a steward of a spiritual gift. Ultimately, the gifting and the power belongs to God, not to me. And we're in a mess if we look at spiritual gifting like like Jesus is Professor X and we're the X-Men and we get saved and baptized and then we all just get like a superpower that we get to do whatever we want with the rest of our Christian days. No, the, the reality is, is that Jesus has handed the ox cord over in the church and he's bestowed a great honor on us that we get to carry out spiritual giftings to give hope to believers and unbelievers using those spiritual giftings and they are ultimately owned by God. He's sovereign over them. And Peter is saying that you work them out and carry them out as good stewards, understanding that they belong to God himself. Verse 11 says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. So I think he um, takes the the spiritual gifts that involve speaking. This would be gifts like prophecy and teaching and discernment and wisdom. And And he says, if you're doing that, as the oracles of God. I think he's referencing the revelation of God, which would be the scriptures. He said, in accordance with the scriptures. And he says, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And so these would be uh, gifts of help, gifts of healings, things like that. Uh, Gifts of service, he is saying, as you serve, you acknowledge that you're doing so, not by your own strength or by your own ability, but by the Holy Spirit's gifting. He says, ultimately, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He finishes this section with a doxology, which means a a place of praise. He says, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you know what the goal of holiness is? You ever wonder, like, why do I not get drunk all the time? Why do I not go to drinking parties and, and orgies? Why do I not live like the Romans did? 
Why do I exercise self-control? All the things that Peter talks about in the first part of this chapter, why do I do that? It's for God's glory. That when we remain in our right capacity, in a right mind, our mind armed with the mind of Christ, we're in a capacity to live as proclaimers of the gospel. And we do that for his glory. Ever wonder why he calls us on mission that we go and take the gospel to other people and, and proclaim hope to other people and tell people of Jesus' death and resurrection? What's the point of that? It's for his glory that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.